Let's pray, and we're going to look at Genesis 13 through 15 tonight. We're going to start moving a little quicker. Genesis 1 through 11 are a very important text to understand theologically who God is and what he has done and how everything has been set up, fall of man, redemption, all those things that are set up there. Now we'll move a little quicker as we continue to uh, look at an overview of the Old Testament towards Christ. Father, thank you for this day. We are grateful for it. We know that Each day of life you give us is a blessing. We do not guarantee us those things. And so we thank you that today you allowed us to breathe and to serve you and to be here together to worship and learn from your word. And so we take full advantage of that, Lord. Father, thank you for those who serve around here and do so many things, Lord. Um, And we're so grateful. And we thank you that you use our building immensely, Lord, with uh, young people and elderly and People are learning and studying together, and great things are happening, Lord. So we give you the praise for that, Lord, and and know that without you, Lord, none of this is possible. So, Lord, please hear our praise on that and our honor to you. Now open our minds to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. As we think about this baby nation of Israel as we're starting into this, um, you can't help but think about um, a watchful God who's caring over this nation. Uh, he, he does that well. The scriptures speak of several places that are always endeared to me as I work with those who maybe are weaker or don't have a dad or something. The Bible says in Psalms 82, 3, Vindicate the weak and the fathers. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Psalms 146.9, the Lord protects the stranger. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. And as you begin to look at this baby infant nation and God watching over, it's a, there's a million, million things that could have happened. This is one man and a barren wife. <laughs> and yet these tremendous promises are given. And, and as we look at some of these circumstances that are around Abram's life as he's moving now into what will be the nation of the Israel in time, there's many events that are just, they're fun, they're just kind of interesting to look at, but then others that point us right to a coming Christ. And so our sovereign Lord, as we'll see today, he gets called that term three times, the most high God, it's a I'll give you the Hebrew for that in a minute, Um, really talks about his sovereignty. He is sovereign over all. And we watch his hand as this young nation is uh, becoming, uh, beginning to form. I gave you some notes there if you have them. We'll just work our way down here. We'll look at, we'll move through these verses together. Genesis 13, um, number one, Abram, a father-like figure but without child. Now, we'll illustrate that in a moment. But you remember the old song we used to sing, Father Abraham and many sons? Well, they were singing this then. <laughs> Father Abraham doesn't have any kids, and he has a great promise from God. You know, <laughs> it's a whole different world. He, he's had this great promise in chapter 12. You're going to have this offspring, this amazing amount of offspring, and, and from it all the nations will be blessed as a promise of Christ, as you remember. And, and, he, and he reiterates this great covenant with him. And, and this is great. And then he goes down to Egypt, then to 12, and he kind of sells his wife down the river a little bit there. God has to protect that. Um, and then we move in 
to 13, and he's got Lot with him. Now remember, Lot's uh, father died, and Abraham, and that's why I wrote this, Abraham, a father figure, um, but without child, he takes Lot with him. He just kind of seems to take him under. Now this is a narrative. There's many years that are going by in this, and Lot is not just some kid. As we'll see, he's actually very wealthy in him and himself. So let's pick it up in 13, and we'll read just a little bit here and uh, learn from the text. So Abraham went up from Egypt, remember that's where he was with Sarai, and the Gev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. So he, he is graciously watching over his nephew here. And Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the Gev to as far as Bethel and to the place where his tent, where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So if you look back at chapter 12, Verse 8, this is where he stopped. He built an altar there and worshiped the Lord. So he's come back to that after going to Egypt and kind of getting an eye of where he's at. He came to the place of the altar which he had, for, uh, had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, Lot, who was with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So he had maybe inherited his dad's stuff. Uh, um, whatever the case, we have two uh, men who have a lot of Herds And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, and all their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, the Canaanites, and this is interesting, this was thrown in here, the Canaanites and the Preserites were dwelling in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between me uh, you and me, and between our herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers, is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and so forth. You see how he lays that out. Now, what any, uh, for those of us that have raised a little bit of livestock, we can see this very clearly. Um, the land can only support so much, right? And a lot of people say, well, how many, how many cattle can you run on your ranch? Well, that, there's a lot of questions that go into that. Is it, you know, is it irrigated and, you know, is it just dry land? All, all those questions come in. And what you do is you, you look at the land that you have and what you're running on and you make a determine of how much livestock you can run on that. If you run too much livestock on there, things start dying, get sick. Um, and there's always what we call range wars. <laughs> uh, a, there are range wars and a separation of outfits. And this is what's happening in this section here. Um, there are the herdsmen who, who like me, I, we did not have a huge herd of cattle. I took care of a lot of people's cattle, how, how I made my living in the first years of ministry. And you really want to do a good job with those. And so I get this as these guys are starting to have some strife between each other in verse 7. You know, when you're out on a range like they probably were here, you want your master's cattle to do well or livestock or sheep, whatever the case may be. And so now you have a limited water possibly or somebody's got the good land and there's always better spots. Uh, and here there's some strife going. And so Abram, the wisdom he had as an older man, he says, look, Lot, man, I love you. Let's not have strife between you and me. Let's not have strife between all those people that God has given us charge over. Um, we have this whole land before us that God is laying out. Let's separate. You go where you want to go and I'll go the opposite way. Very very gracious there. Um, a, there, I should explain that. Um, Gina said, they're going to think it's they're changing, they're gonna, they're changing clothes. Uh, <laughs> range wars and separating outfits. An outfit, to me, is, hey, yeah, that's uh, the Sheely outfit over there, you know, and, and uh, 
you know, you just, you just put, that's their outfit. That's everything, encompasses everything. So Lot and all his people and all his herds and stuff. So there's a separation of those. But I love Abraham's gentleness here. Here he is with Lot. And then he says, look, let's, let's figure this out. And so B, there's this gracious uncle Abram. His name hasn't been changed yet. And a nephew's poor decision. Notice in, in verse 10, Lot begins to look and say, well, okay, if you say so, Uncle Abe. <laughs> um, and he, looks at, he lifts up his eyes, about the text says, and he saw the Valley of Jordan. Now, now we're getting back to what we would understand. Jordan is, is some of the most fertile ground in the entire world. They've taken core samples down to two to 300 feet, and the, and the soil does not change in that valley which is amazing. Uh, California has a portion of its valley that is very similar to that, where the, they don't have soil changes for great, great depths in there. It is extremely fertile there. Even to this day, even with a land that really doesn't have the blessing of God on it like it once did, um, it is still a very, very fertile spot. And so as um, you know, a, maybe a good rancher would do, he looks up and he sees the Valley of Jordan, that it was well watered. If you have water... Good things happen. <laughs> uh, when we bought ranches, the first thing is, what's your water right? What, what do you have on this ranch? What, what is, how much water do we get? How often do we get it? Where, how deep are the wells? I mean, uh, you have to ask those questions. So here's Lot. He's looking at it. He says, well, it's watered well. Uh, and this is, this is before the Bible says that the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So now, he's, now we begin to see the area maybe that he's looking at. In fact, it says this. It was like the garden of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting statement? How well they understood uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, that, that that truth carried down through even before the word of God was written. They certainly knew this. Now, make sure we always hold context here. Who's writing the book? Moses, and who's he writing it to? Nation of Israel. Where are they? Probably about ready to go in the land of Canaan. So he's reminding him of all these things, right? They're looking back here through the inspiration of God's word to what God has done. So Lot lifts up his eyes. He looks at this great valley. It's well watered. It's going to take care of my livestock. Um, and this is what he chooses, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all of the valley of Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. And if, if you could look, see it on a map, if you look west, then you have the great Mediterraneans and oceans there to the east would be the Jordan Valley and beyond that would be Babylon and, and so forth. So here Lot chooses for himself all that valley of Jordan and Lot journeyed there and they separate it from each other. Now verse 12, Abram, he settles in the land of Canaan. Now these are important terms because here you're about ready to go in the land and Moses is inspired by God and he's writing the Pentateuch down and he's using the names of the cities and the areas that you're about ready to go into. So there's an important. It gives us a historical and a geographical understanding of where these are. But remember, he's helping those people get ready to realize that God is for the taking of this land. And so he's using these terms. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan. He wants them to know our people were here already. And particularly, Abram who um, was one of the men, the patriarchs of our nation. And then Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tents as far 
as Sodom. Now, this little phrase gets thrown in here in verse 13. Notice this. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, uh, were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now, that, that's a very important verse if you're trying to rally the troops to go in and wipe people out. They need to know that these aren't, well, they're, they're nice people, you know. Can you imagine today the way God commanded in the Old Testament? I want you to go in there and wipe everybody out. Don't bring anything out. Burn it all. Oh, we could not do this. We take over, a, a, we go in and help out a country, then we rebuild it for them. <laughs> he, he wants them to know these people are wicked. And here, where you don't even have probably what was uh, at the time of Moses, the nation of Israel, on the doorstep of this Canaan land, they're probably far exceeded what we're going to see in Genesis 19 when Lot is there and the angels come to remove him. Um, Moses wants it made clear, God's word wants it made clear that these people were wicked. And, and when you study these early texts like this, and he keeps naming places, we're going to see Amorites and Hittites and Prezerites. He's reminding them, those are the people that were in the land, and Abram was there first. And so it's a reminder of what he is about to do. So Lot chooses his place, and God uh, gives Abraham the rest. And so the Lord said to Abraham, um, verse 14, uh, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes. And here we see God's covenant to the land that he's going to give to the nation of, of Israel. And said, listen, Abram, um, Lot's now gone. I want you to lift up your eyes, verse 14, and look from that place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Have you ever stood somewhere where you could see a long ways in all directions? Uh, our cattle, we had a permit that ran us right into the corner of California, where California T-bones into Oregon. So this is Nevada, California, Oregon. And on that spot, there's actually a giant rock jack, probably the size of my pulpit here. Um, a rock jack is a cage with lots of rocks in it. And you can stand on that rock. You can stand on that cage of rocks. And you can look till the earth kind of curves away. It's just high desert out there. And, and you can stand and you can, you, know, you can look west and you can look east. And it's just an amazing place to stand. You've kind of got your feet in all three states while you're there. And, and here you can kind of see this picture where God says, look, I want you to look in all of these directions. Verse 15, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. What an amazing thing that was. I don't know if he was still up on a mountain there at Bethel or where he was, but here it is the covenant promise that God has. And he has made a case here against these wicked people. Um, and, and yet, God is reminding this nation, as they're about ready to go in, the, the older parents have died off because of their lack of faith. The, the, the children have grown up over those 40 years. They're now ready to obey God and go into the land. And he's reminded them, God gave this to our father Abraham. And he gives them that beautiful scene. He looked west and east and north and south, and God promised those things. Verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, Still no children, <laughs> but I will make your descendants of the dust of the earth so that, so that if anyone could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Verse 17, God tells him, Arise, walk about the land in its length and its breast, and I will give it to you. 
Um, what an amazing thing. So Abraham moves his tent and he came and dwelt in the Oaks of Mamre. We'll see him remain there for a little while um, uh, as, as he follows and obeys the Lord here. Now, so, so here he is. He's He's having these promises. Chapter 12 says he's going to be this great nation. He's going to have within him uh, a seed that's going to be a blessing to all nations. He has now been shown the land. He's been uh, stood there and told to gaze upon all that God is going to give him. And yet, um, he has no children. Now, number two, Abram, a warrior who has favor with God. In the middle of all this, he has to go to war. I don't have children. Now I got to go to battle. And you know what happens in this text? There's, uh, I think, verse, chapter, verse 9 and 14. I think it's verse 9. It says, uh, there was four kings against five kings. These, these nine kings went to war against each other. And in the middle of it, and with, for the sake of time, he, Lot gets gathered up in this. And pretty soon we find that Lot is now captured uh, by these kings that have come into the Sodom and Gomorrah area down into this Jordan Valley uh, to come and get these things. Now, it's important to realize if you have good land, somebody always wants it, especially here. Uh, if you can grow uh, and produce fruit and vegetables and, and uh, uh, wheat and the things that it takes to survive and to grow numbers of people, that becomes very valuable. And so uh, it doesn't take long for man to be warring. I think, I think this is the first time we see war in the Bible. And we're not terribly far from Babel, um, but it doesn't take long for those different nations to have different tongues, to become groups of people, and then sin and depravity to take its role in their lives, and now they begin to desire to have something that somebody else has. We're still doing that today, aren't we? Um, people steal and take and fight and wage war against each other, whether that's neighbor upon neighbor or nation upon nation. We see uh, humanity. And what, again, I, I believe, and we think about this in its context as this nation's about ready to go into, into the land of Canaan, God is proving to them that, that he has seen them battle before and proving God wins battles. Because what's fascinating about this is Abraham gathers up his, his little army here, right? Um, here in our, in our outline B, God's protection of the seed of Abraham. He gathers up this little army. Look, notice verse um, 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supplies and departed. And they also took Lot, there's the problem, Abram's nephew, and all of his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. So now this gets Abraham engaged. Then a fugitive, somebody that made it out of the war, comes to Abraham, the Hebrew, and he was living in the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, the brother of Eskel, the brother of uh, Aner, and, uh, who were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and they pursued as far as Dan. So so again, here's this infant nation. First of all, we go back to the context of Abraham's. Here's this infant nation. God's promised all these things. And now, Abraham, that doesn't have really a nation, doesn't have a bunch of people that are from his loin that would become the nation of Israel, they're in a battle. They're in a war. And all it takes is one stray arrow to wipe out Abraham. 
And what's so fascinating is you read this, you go, God just sent him into war. And he, and he actually gathers up his own men to take this on. And so here, this promise of this great nation is, is you know, humanly, you begin to think it's under attack. But God is at, in here. He's showing them that he has warred for this land before. And, I, and I, I think that's overwhelming. As I read that again today, I thought, Lord, you showed the nation that you had already come in and take this one, you took this land once through Abraham. And as they're about ready to go in in a much bigger war machine than Abram's, that God would give them this land again. And he is watching over uh, this little nation in the womb, in the, in the seed of Abraham right now. And he is protecting the Messiah's seed. When Abraham heard this, he didn't even flinch that his relatives have been taken captive. He leads out these trained men, born in his house, these 318 guys, and off to war they go. He, he seems to know what he's doing. Verse 15, he divides his forces against them by night. I don't know if that was popular at that time to go in at night. And he and his servants defeated them. Now there's nine kings with all their people and we don't have enough information in the narrative to understand how big this battle was but you got nine kings in different cities and different people groups all involved four against five fighting here and here comes Abram and the Bible says he defeated them in the middle of 15 and he pursued, pursued them as far as Hoboth which is north of Damascus so you can kind of get an idea he's laying out this war has already happened here there's already been a fight for this land and God prevailed through Abram and we know in verse 16 that he he wins and he brings back these these goods and all these people his relative lot with all his possessions now verse 17 we see the most high God was worshipped in Canaan. I want you to, uh, this is an important addendum that gets put in here. So here's Abraham, has no children, he's got this promised land, the seed's going to come, it's going to be a great nation. He ends up going to war, and in the middle of this, God shows that he has been worshipped in this pagan land. Notice in verse 17, we are introduced to uh, the kingly priest of Melchizedek. Now after he returns, verse 17, from defeating uh, Chador, uh, I gotta say this right. I worked on this today. Chador Lamar, Chador Lamar, um, from the kings who were with him, the kings who were with him. King Solomon went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, and that is the king's valley. Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. Now what, now, what a fascinating statement right here. In a very pagan world, you've got the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. We were already told back in chapter 13, in verse, verse 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So you, you don't have this really nice place. And yet in the middle of that, here is this, this priest, this kingly priest who comes out. And he blesses him. He blesses Abraham. Now, I think what Moses is doing here through the inspiration of God, he's displaying that the Most High God was once worshipped in this land, and we're going to take it back. It is the land that I gave to Abraham. I told him to look on all these directions. I will give it. But he wants that nation as they're going to go in there, and they're going to take Jericho and eventually Ai, and they're going to work their way across all these all these people groups and try to defeat them and, t and take possession of the land that he wants them to know that God was worshipped here previously. 
and was worshipped by this kingly priest. Now, though the king of Solomon seemingly comes out at first to greet Abram, notice that Melchizedek gets priority in statement and honor. So the king comes out in verse 17. I found this fascinating to meet them. But verse 18, Melchizedek is the one who begins to speak. So there seems to be this authority and and honor. And without hesitation, Abram receives this blessing from Melchizedek. Uh, And he also gives an offering to him. Notice in verse 19, he blessed him and said, now this is Melchizedek blessing Abram, blessed be Abram, and look at the church choice of words that he uses. Of God most high. Um, Elohim Elyon is the, the Hebrew phrase. So, so this Elyon, we get this idea of sovereignty from that. I bless you it, it, literally in the name of a sovereign Lord, a sovereign God, our sovereign God. And then he says this phrase, and he says this at least twice, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, again, as I I think about this, and and here's this nation that's poised on the border of Canaan, and Moses is uh, being led to write this down. What a great encouragement this is. Our father Abraham has been right where we were before. He went through a war. He He was met there with one who told him of a blessing of a God who's sovereign over all things, and he possesses heaven and earth. I think that would really strengthen you if you were ready to go into battle. <laughs> and then out of all the probably millions of things that happened to Abraham over these years, God sovereignly picks these things to bring them forward for us to understand that he was in this. And he was, he was strengthening this nation. Verse 20, he says it again, blessed be the God most, blessed be God most high. The same phrase here, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. See the wording that he picks there? Now it's said to Abraham, but this is being read to the nation of Israel before they go into Canaan. I mean, that would have, blessed be the God, most, most, God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is what Moses was telling them. This is what Joshua and Caleb told the original group. God is going to give them into your hand. He told us that. And so here they are now hearing the Pentateuch written. It doesn't end there. Um, Abram is so moved by this that he gave him a tenth of all. So we we start to run into some things we, we really have to think about here. This king of Sodom, he comes out first. Melchizedek seems to trump him with authority and statement and honor. Abram doesn't hesitate at receiving this blessing from him. And then he gives him an offering. And Melchizedek is called the priest of the Most High God, the God who's sovereign. And here twice uses this title, indicating he worships and serves the true living God. Now, I think another aspect that I thought about this week as I was preparing for this is all of, all of those Canaanites and Prezerites and Hittites and every, all the Ittites and Amorites and so forth, they all have their own gods. But what's clear in here is the, the God most high reigns. And, and trust me, this, this king of Sodom, and we're going to run back into these guys here in a few chapters, these guys were not worshiping that God. 
They really had nothing to do with them. They had their own gods. But the God, the God of the living God, the most high God, he trumps all of their other dead gods. And that's what gets the authority. Now, it's interesting, and you know this, and we won't have time to dig too deep into this, but something that you would want to read in Hebrews chapter 7. Here, this, this understanding of Melchizedek. He, he lacks a family background. In, in the text here, there seems to be no family heritage of Melchizedek. There's no starting and beginning of his time. His name itself means righteous king or ruler. He serves as a kingly priest of soon to be the city of Jerusalem. Because that's Salem. Salem goes on to be Jerusalem. And, and we all know that. And he eventually, here, God leads this inspired writer of Hebrews to make him out to be as a type of Christ. Look at, just look, we'll just look at a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 7. Because there's, there's a lot of things that are in Hebrews 7. But I just want you to see the first few verses here. The point is, is it seems to be a reference to the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have a genealogical uh, heritage. He's, he's an eternal God. And he's called the Most High. Same references we see that are called to the Lord Jesus, even by demons and others. Notice in Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, I mean, he's taking this right out of the text, right? Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoil, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. I mean, these are all terms that we would give to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so <clears throat> people said, well, was he Christ incarnate? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what it was. I think he was a type. And we see types. Joseph is a type in a certain way. Moses is a type in a certain way. And here, Melchizedek is that type. He trumps all others. He is to be honored. He is to be given to, gifts to. He is to be tithed to. He is the king of righteousness. And here he blesses Abram. Verse 3, uh, without further, uh, without, excuse me, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but made like, and that's our key word, like, is a type, the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And so the writer of Hebrews, and you can go on and study this, ties him into a type of Christ and reminds us that there is one great high priest that trumps all things, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we look at Genesis and uh, go, wow, what an amazing set of events as God is protecting this nation that is uh, in the seed of Abraham. But at the same time, he's showing us he's there. He's there. And as the nation is at the doorstep of the land of Canaan, here's God saying, I've already been there. I've already won battles there. I've already been worshipped there. And I'm going to give you this land. I mean, what a beautiful statement. And, and I, don't, I don't think we run around claiming a name and stuff all the time. But... There are times we have to remember that God is for us. Who can be against us, Paul says in Romans 8. And, and he gets out ahead of us. And he clears paths. And, he, and he, he does things that we can't even see. 
And, and what a reminder as Moses is sitting down by the inspiration of God, writing the history of, of Abraham so that all the nation can read it to realize that God's already been in this land that we're about ready to go get. And he's been worshipped by a select few. And then all that it took to protect Abram. Abram shows great faith here, doesn't he? And you know what? I'm not sure he's even what we would call saved yet. I think he's exercising some human faith, possibly. But chapter 15, and we'll close with this, is really where we see him credited righteousness. And if you don't have God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, you're not saved. So, so here's this great faith. But in verse 15, we see, point three, righteousness and covenants that are alien to man. God's going to show him you don't have the strength to do this on your own. In fact, we see Abraham's knees buckle here just a bit. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be great, very great. Now, it's interesting. God seems to, uh, it seems to me that God knows that he's, he's nervous about some things. He's been through now a war, <laughs> He's separated from his nephew Lot. Um, a good expanse of time has gone by, and Sarah's still not pregnant, and we're getting older every day. And this fear begins to grip him a little bit. And God meets him in that fear. He speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. Nowhere in the text does it say he's afraid, because God knows he's afraid. And he's just done an amazing thing. He's met the king of, uh, king, priestly king Melchizedek. He's done all these things. And in the very next text, we come to a man who's afraid. In fact, he's so afraid, he offers a different plan. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God. Great, great entry, great title that he gives God. What will you give me since I am childless? And then he makes a statement. And the heir of the house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So, in a way, a very gentle, kind way, Abram is saying, This child thing ain't working out, God. <laughs> I mean, we're trying. <laughs> but it ain't happening. So, slave born in my house really belongs to me. So, I got a plan. Let's use Eliezer's son. He's really mine anyway. I own him. So he's really like my son. So let's, let's do that. Let's try that, since this whole child thing isn't working. And it's interesting how the Lord responds to him. Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, very clearly here, This man will not be your heir. Wrong idea. You're going down a wrong direction here. Do you ever been down a wrong direction with God? And you kind of find out, hmm, kind of got out in front of him there. That wasn't any fun. Uh, I think this is what he's experienced. This heir is not, this, this man is not going to be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. This man is getting old. <laughs> And his faith is lapsing here just a little bit. His human faith is, I think. And he took him outside the tent. Now, this is interesting. It must have been at night. And he took him outside the tent in verse 5. And he says, he's, he, I tent because I, I think he was wandering. And he took him outside and said, 
Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. So here's the scene. He's already been to war. I mean, if you go back and read a little more in 14, I mean, that was a massive slaughter. Kings fell into tar pits that got them, killed them there, tracked down the other ones. This is battle, man, hand-to-hand combat. This isn't shooting from, you know, F-15s from miles away. He's been through that. He's got his, lot, his, his nephew back and his family, and, he's got, and he gives all the goods back. He won't take anything. We skipped that part, but he says, I'm not taking anything because the king of Solomon says, oh, we'll give you some of this stuff because I'm not taking anything because you'll think that, I don't want you to think that I was, I, this was me that did this. He wanted people to know that God did this. But here in verse 15, you see this, chapter 15, you see this little bit of lapse in faith as he tries to help God, tries to help him come and fix this. And so here, finally, he says, God, man, I don't know if this is working. God says, Abram, come out of your tent. Look at the stars. If you could count those, which you can't, I'm going to number your children. And, okay, I left my home. I, I came across the river. I entered a land that was not mine. I, I took care of my son, my, nep- my, my brother's son, Lot, I went and got in a war to get him back. I, I would not take any goods that were gained from that war. I did not want people to think that that was my strength done that. But I can't produce a child. And you could see him looking up and going, I can't get my wife pregnant, let alone start counting your stars. And, and it's at that point, verse 6, what an amazing verse in verse 15 here. Then he believed in the Lord. Just verses before this, he's offering God an eternal, an, uh, uh, alternate plan, right? I got another idea. Let's go with this one. And so here, and this is the way God works. He floods the knowledge of himself and belief, the faith that we need. He plunges that into our hearts so we believe. And then uh, out of the whole circumstance, uh, Lord, let's try this. Come out, look, believe. And he believes. In fact, it's such true faith that the Bible says he reckoned or accredited to him as righteousness. And it's at this point where God declares Abraham righteous. And most theologians and most of us that look at this, we go, well, this is where you've got to be saved here, right? We don't believe in a different salvation in the Old Testament than we do in the New Testament, right? And we, the same thing happens to you and I. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may obtain, we may receive his righteousness. He must dress us in his righteousness. And so here at this point where God just meets him here. And he's done some very faithful things. He's fought battles. He's got after his nephew. He's looked at the land and walked all over. He gave his, his nephew the choice. He's done some really neat, good things. But it's at this point, at this point where God meets him in a supernatural way. And he looks in the stars and he believes. And he isn't perfect. God says to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I am the one who did this. And he said, O Lord God, and there's, it seems to be a different tone here. How may I know that I will possess this land? He's gone from, I can't have a kid, 
okay, I believe righteousness fills him, but how am I going to take this land? I'm one guy. And so he said to him, bring me three year, uh, three-year-old heifers and three of three uh, and three-year-old female goats and three-year-old rams and turtle doves and young pigeons and he gathering these sacrifices. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid them each uh, half opposite of each other. You can kind of see this. And he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So this is happening kind of all day, right? It's going on all afternoon. Now when the sun was going down, now notice this, a deep sleep falls upon Abram. The, ter- the, the, the words are very clear here. It falls upon him. It's God putting Abraham to sleep here. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, I I don't think in any way this is a sinful fear, but I think it's more of that most high God drawing near to him. Isaiah chapter 6 type of uh, presence of God. And so in this sleep, in this dream state, he seems to fall into, there's this great terror of God that falls upon him. In verse 13, God says to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So he's given him prophecy here. They're going to go to Egypt, right? That's what he's talking about. There they're going to be enslaved. And then he says this, verse 14, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards they will come out with many possessions. Isn't that exactly what happens? They're there for 400 years, and wow, does God judge that nation. That nation was plundered when Israel came out. They took all their gold and silver. They, I mean, the firstborn are dead, the cattle are dead, the crops are destroyed. I mean, everything is done. This is all years, years before this all happens. And again, now, now come, jump back into context of this nation about ready to go into the land of Canaan. They know that story. What a reminder that we have a great God who can, can destroy people with hail. Turn water into blood. Bring frogs out of the Nile. And also kill firstborn. And so this is this remembrance of this. And I think what's most beautiful as you can read down this as we're out of time here. You can see where God, what God does. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant, but not with you. I'm making it with myself. Puts him to sleep. Kind of takes him out of the scene in a way. He, he does that often with him. You, know, you can't produce children on your own. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to open Sarah's womb. I'm going to open Rebecca's room and so forth. He does this. And so this one particularly, this great covenant with Abraham, as he separates this, he passes, you'll, you'll notice that he passes through it. I'm going to swear by myself to do this. And God produces this great covenant, as we know as the Abrahamic covenant before God. Verse 18, And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants, remember he doesn't have any, (laughs) to your descendants I have given this land. See, he had to have the righteousness of God to believe this. Because no one in their right mind is going to go, you keep using that word descendants, and she's still barren. You have to have the faith of God. And, and, and just in closing, brothers and sisters, that's what God does for us. Have you seen heaven? Anybody been there? 
If you have, we need to talk probably. Don't be writing some book. I mean, God grants you faith to believe that he sent his son, died on a cross, judged in your place, wiped out your past, present, and future sins, has ascended into heaven, and has been there for 2,000 years, creating a place for you and I to exist eternally with him. Do you believe that? That takes a faith of God to transform a mind of a sinner, to put faith in a God that can do something like that. And it's the mark of salvation. It's the mark of the righteousness of God given to us through Jesus Christ. And, and when you read these stories and you think about this nation on the cusp of this, of this border, about ready to go in, all their parents are dead because they wouldn't believe. God is taking them through these early years of Abraham and then he's going to take them through Jacob and Isaac and Jacob and then he's going to take them through Joseph and he's going to remind them of all these things that God has done. Now let's go. And as we get to Joshua and eventually there, you'll see where their faith in God is so strong early on. Believe so much that we're just going to walk around a place and it's going to fall down. But then over time, they don't pass it on to the next generation. And they lose it, it seems. And so I love reading these stories. I love teaching these stories because they remind us that God has granted you faith. And though we, like Abraham, one moment win battles by the, by the grace of God and the next moment going, God, <laughs> I'm scared. We do that, don't we? And yet he says, I promise I will come and get you. And where I am, you will be with me also. And he makes that covenant promises to us. And so we read this with a Christological outlook to it, don't we? We understand and we can see, we can see Christ in all of these things. That Everything's flowing towards that cross. Everything's flowing to that covenant that God was going to redeem man. All the way from Genesis 3, all the way forward. And so uh, what a joy to read our Bibles that way. Now, a couple of next sections are really good, 16, 17, 19. We'll try to cover next week um, as, as this final push to obey the Lord, even when you can't see what's happening. And then, uh, of course, the birth of Isaac. Father, thank you for uh, a chance to lead, look into your word today. Lord, we all are living lives that um, take faith, Lord. And you ask us to do things that we can't always see how they're going to turn out. In fact, the world would probably laugh at our belief system today. But Lord, we, we have faith because you made us righteous. You, give us, you gave us a holy standing with you through Jesus Christ. We, we now are your children. And so we have faith to see a celestial city, a Mount Zion that you have prepared for us. And though the hills are steep at times and there's lions along the path and there's difficulties that come our way lord we have a book we have a scroll we have the word given to us to remind us that you have been there already you have won the battles and you get the credit and so lord we ask that you would strengthen us as we go through individual things in this room lord i can only imagine how many different issues people are facing right at this moment and even, Lord, some have struggled to concentrate because they're thinking about uh, something that's going on in their life that they don't have an answer for. 
But I, I pray, Father, that you would take the word and pierce all of our hearts. And you would grant us faith to trust you and to believe you when we cannot quite see the outcome. And Lord, we will worship you for that. You certainly are the God most high. And so we praise you for these things. Lord, bless, bless these folks. Lord, bless us as we follow you. Give us strength to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.